Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly, tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities in which we know each person by name, or at minimum, by face, we are collaborative and we sustain everyone in our community. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, as part of our series on local government, we bring you Mendocino County Supervisor Ted Williams. Stay tuned for this informative interview. By the way, I always invite you to text or call in during the broadcast. The number is 650-TALLY-HO. Yes, it's 650-TALLY-HO. First, before our interview, some news and notes. Today, we'll be talking about the COVID pandemic and its devastating effect on the people and economy of a small county in Northern California called Mendocino. To put the plight in geopolitical perspective, I offer you some perspective on the country of Syria. Syria is home to one of the oldest civilizations in the world with a rich artistic and cultural heritage. From its ancient roots to its recent political instability and the Syrian civil war, the country has a complex and at times tumultuous history. Modern day Syria, a country located in the Middle East, on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea, is one of the most ancient inhabited regions on the earth. The oldest human remains found in Syria date back to roughly 700,000 years ago. Archaeologists have uncovered skeletons and bones of Neanderthals that lived in the region during that period. Ebla, a city in Syria, that's thought to have existed around 3000 BC, is one of the oldest settlements to be excavated. Fast forward to 2000, when the dictator Hafez el-Assad died, and his son, Bashar Assad, became president at 34. After Bashar took power, the constitution was amended to reduce the minimum age of the president from 40 to 34. In 2002, the United States accused Syria of acquiring weapons of mass destruction and listed the nation of Syria as a member of the so-called Axis of Evil Countries. Many human rights groups have reported that Assad regularly tortures, imprisons, and kills political adversaries. These events, combined with other circumstances, including a lagging economy, a severe drought, a lack of general freedom, and a tense religious atmosphere led to civilian resistance and ultimately an uprising. According to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, at least 321,000 people have been killed since the start of the war or are missing. According to the nonprofit organization World Vision, More than 11 million Syrians, roughly half of the country's entire population, have been displaced from their homes as of April 2017. Yes, you heard that right. 11 million, half the population displaced. Last year, former U.S. President Trump signed a sanctions bill which places an economic siege on the entire Syrian population. As a result of Trump's work, 83% of the population are now living below the poverty level, while the other 17% are living high and making a fortune 
by monopolizing basic materials. The Syrian currency has collapsed and basic food is difficult to find. University workers make $18 a month. Dock workers make $30 a month. While former President Trump claimed proudly that he did not star a war during his tenure as president, he fails to mention that his economic war has killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world, and particularly in Syria, through starvation. And then to the 83% of the Syrian population living in abject poverty comes the pandemic of COVID. Face masks and even hand sanitizers are unaffordable, and the hospitals are full to capacity. Full to capacity, the government does not even reveal any of the data. One million Syrians are now living in tents, and they're sleeping 15 in a tent and sharing communal water and bathrooms. Now, we put in perspective the county of Mendocino, three hours northwest of San Francisco. Our guest today, Mendocino County Supervisor Ted Williams. If you go to Supervisor Williams' website, you will read the following statement of what, and I quote, you can count on me to work tirelessly to do. I will increase support for fire departments and first responders. I will expand high-speed internet. I will ensure medical and hospital availability. I will develop public trails, both for residents and ecotourism. I will address the housing shortage through plan updates. I will protect Class K owner-builder construction. I will streamline cannabis policy with common sense, eliminate sunset provision, fast-track permits. I will protect our environment and rural way of life. I will support mental health and social services, maximize rail work and railroad efficiency. I will plan for climate change from water policy to fire protection, ensure fairness in policies with maximum transparency and public participation. I will protect the coast against offshore oil drilling. I will pursue partners for clean economic development, providing living wages for all. I will fight for social justice, promote local ecological food security, find real solutions to homelessness, and build a long-term vision, including rail. Uh, and welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, uh, Supervisor Williams. Thanks for having me, Richard. You're welcome. And uh, may I call you by your first name during the interview? I, I hope you will. Okay, I certainly will. Um, so let's begin uh, with sort of an overview uh, of for the listeners who are out there in uh, Paris. And uh, hello to uh, Dirk Liesenfeld and your friends out there, and to our friends in Wisconsin, uh, Dr. Nick Cozy and Dr. Alan Ajaya, and our friends there in, in Wisconsin, our friends in New York. For those people who don't know where we are or who we are, please give us uh, some background, just some uh, description about Mendocino County. Well, um, we're a rural county on uh, the north coast of California uh, with a population of approximately 90,000 residents. And um, we, we, we face a lot of the struggles that, that rural uh, local government faces of, of being underfunded and um, we have the added uh, difficulties of a, of a complex uh, terrain and uh, geographic separation of, of small communities. So wh- when you say um, underfunded, tell us more about underfunded and how, did that, how that affects the county 
and why we, the county is underfunded? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but California voters passed Proposition uh, 13 uh, back in the 70s, locking in property tax uh, with no more than a 2% increase per year. And uh, it's a good idea to, it was a good idea at the time to prevent from people from being uh, uh, essentially evicted from inability to pay rising property taxes. But in the long term, it has the effect of uh, a significantly reduced tax base. In real terms, you have less and less every year to work with. The, you know, the, the state has tried to uh, remedy. You have properties that never trade hands. For example, a large chain grocery store uh, d- doesn't sell the pro- won't, won't be selling their property uh, at end of life. They live uh, um, perpetually. And so as a result, there's, there, there's less to work with. And uh, various uh, methods have been devised to increase the tax base, special taxes and using sales tax. But the bottom line is uh, rural counties like Mendocino have a very difficult time meeting the public's expectations. And I would, I would add that you know, we're, our county is twice the size of uh, the smallest state in the United States. And yet we only have 90,000 people. We have a vast road network that would have been appropriate for resource extraction, which is where a lot of the roads originated. It was to pull uh, timber out of the county. Well, today to maintain those road networks where, you know, it can, it can cost half a million dollars per mile to do it properly with engineered fill. And, um, we, you know, the amount of miles we have, we're never going to catch up. So we know that there's a looming problem that over time services will, pro- will probably decline unless uh, a solution is found. Some argue that we don't get our fair share. I'm actually not convinced it may be that we are getting more than our fair share in it. Or in other words, the funds that we send to the state, we may be getting more back in services uh, subsidized by other areas. And, you know, this is this is natural for a state the size of California to have some areas generating more tax revenue uh, than others. Well, Ted, anyone who's been in business fully understands that all prices, all costs go up on a regular basis if not yearly, most everything actually does go up yearly, or certainly every other year. And sometimes this is called inflation. And what businesses also know is that if your cost of doing business is going up on a regular basis, you have to expand your revenue in order to stay in business. So how does Mendocino County stay in? This sounds like an unsustainable situation that you're Uh describing. With a set income. I would say it is. And the problem compounds because as the result of not paying people fair market wages, you tend to get uh, folks using the county as a stepping stone. They join understanding that they're being paid below market, but they want to gain some experience before they move on to a better job somewhere else. Well, that leaves us in a terrible position because um, not only do we not have the staff we need with the skill that we need, but we're bringing in people, training them at our expense to have them then leave and, and move on. And there's there's probably an element of uh, b- becoming a modern office, not pushing paper around, but using digital records. And you know, it, it would be better to have a smaller staff, well-paid, rooted, uh, not using the county as a stepping stone. But the seed funding to do that modernization uh, hasn't yet been found. So I, I'm, I'm with you. It's a, you know, I think we're kicking it down the, the road as, uh, on every turn, but, but eventually we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that we're, we're underfunded to carry out the, the charter. Gee, when I, when I contemplate what you're saying uh, with the road system, with a county that's larger than the smallest state in the union, what that also means is that your sheriff's department has a vast territory to cover in order to give civil protection. And if you're underfunded, that means that the sheriff is probably feeling underfunded as well. Is that the case? Oh, I'm sure it's the case. The sheriff's office has talked about not having more officers than the 1970s, right? My whole life, I don't know that they've expanded their their labor force. Um, it's, it's hard to go by the absolute numbers because in some years the jail has been included and other years it's been excluded. 
Um, I don't, I don't have a great trail in front of me of those changes over the years to, to do a comparison, but we know from folks who worked for the County and law enforcement uh, all the way back to the seventies that they have about the same amount of staff today. And, you know, in some cases, the problems have, have, have grown uh, more pronounced. And I know that a lot of people um, uh, are split on the concept of defunding law enforcement, defunding the police. I really don't like to use that term, but I think um, what is essential is we address mental health problems with the best available tool, which in a lot of cases is not a guy with a gun and a badge. And homelessness, uh, same thing. We need to find ways to address some of the problems that law enforcement responds to because sending a, a, a law enforcement officer out is the most expensive. And it's not just the, the it's the most expensive resource at the, the time they're called. If they don't solve the problem because they're a poor fit for the type of problem, they're going to go back again and again. And um, perhaps there's a way to allocate resources where we, we tackle the problem uh, once and save that law enforcement resource for where it's truly needed. When people talk about, use this word defunding, uh, do they really mean taking money away from the police and the sheriff? Or do they mean refunding by, instead of adding additional police officers, add mental health workers so that the police don't have to be doing mental health work while they're doing their protective work. That, that, that's right. It's about allocate, It's about reallocating to have the right resources to get the job done. You know, I would say there, there are some difficulties in an environment like, like ours. Uh, are you going to send a mental health worker out without law enforcement to down a dirt road, rural community, not knowing what to expect? A lot of these calls are not always as dispatched. They don't know what they're walking into. In an urban environment, I think that, that that defunding or reallocation can work because you send a mental health worker out and they find that, in fact, they need law enforcement. Law enforcement is around the corner. Well, imagine our scenario where you send out mental health and you know maybe they're an hour out on their own. They get there and they figure out there's a risk of violence. They actually do need a cop. Uh, can they afford to wait that hour? I think um, there's merit to the approach but there are also some realities of our rural uh, environment. Gee, Ted, if I'm a listener and I'm a Mendocino County resident, and although I am sort of a listener, although I'm the host of the program, the back of my mind is saying, wow, this guy, Ted Williams, I mean, he sounds like an honest guy. He's telling it to us straight, but it's the gloomy picture. Am I looking at decreased services for police, decreased services for fire, decreased education. Uh, you know, this sounds like a, a very serious situation. And, and uh, are there commissions? Are there people? Are there supervisors? Is anybody looking three, five years ahead on how we're going to start bringing in revenue so that we don't go down, down, down? How does this whole thing work from your perspective? There, there's a Move 2030 effort the county has been in, involved in, and it's been a way to pull the, the public on where they see the county 5, 15, 20, 20 years out. And not that the county will necessarily take on those tasks, but let's try to get a vision for where we want to be, get all parties aligned and see how we can collaborate. A lot of, the, a lot of that movement will only come out of public-private collaboration. And government, local government can't do it on its own. It'll be private industry, but we should be uh, encouraging it. We should do, be doing outreach. We should be trying to make our public policy um, ease the path of development that we want to see. You know, I think there's, there has been a mindset in Mendocino County of um, anti-development. More, more realistic is we should steer that development. Uh, if we have new build out, let's make sure it's small, modest housing stock, not McMansions. Let's make sure it's energy efficient. Let's build towns that are more blue zones where people can walk to check the mail instead of hop in the car. You know, um, as a Mendocino County resident and, and growing up here, I want to believe that if the world would just live the way I'm living, we wouldn't have this climate problem. But, but actually, you look at the way we live in rural Mendocino County, we use automobiles for just about everything. We need uh, milk. We hop in the car. We need to check, check our mail. A lot of us are driving. 
And it, it may be that urban res- re- residents, say in San Francisco, actually have a lower carbon footprint per capita because of, because of the density. Not to say I want Mendocino County to become urbanized, but we should be thinking about how our general plan supports reducing um, the, the travel component of, of greenhouse gases. We have to be thinking very smart in a situation like this, don't we? Well, there, there's also there's also a health and mental health aspect. Uh, if you live in Mendocino County, don't you want to be able to walk and check the mail and walk to get your groceries? And we've inherited these towns that came out of a, uh, a timber industry. It was resource extraction based. But uh, you look at some of the greatest cities around the world, and they were they were developed before the invention of the automobile, and they're walkable. What's stopping us from having walkable towns and cities in Mendocino County? Uh, you know, just, just the political will and the, the, the public interest in making it happen. My wife and I, uh, a few years ago, have taken to tricycling. Uh, and we do a lot of our errands, food shopping, uh, going to the hardware store and so on, on our tricycles. And uh, we, we not only find it very pleasant because we live in such a beautiful area, but we're getting our exercise while we're doing our chores. So it, it, uh, it works out very well. And uh, for those who can walk, I'm not able to do that because of motorcycle injuries. But for those who can walk, it would be a wonderful thing if we change our mindset in the way that you're talking. We change our mindset. It, it's not an inconvenience to walk. It's an opportunity to both get our exercise and get some chores done at the very same time. And, and, and that, that would be a, a, a mindset change for sure. But even as I'm saying that, though, I'm still in the back of my mind thinking about this relationship between income and expense, between the fact that you're telling us that we're stopped at a certain level with property taxes, which is a major source of income for the county, isn't it? The property taxes. It, it, it is. The, the cost of providing services is inflating uh, at a greater rate than revenue is increasing. Yes, yes. And so hopefully that's what this 2030 and some of this uh, other, these thought processes are going towards is to work out something so that we, we, we thrive rather than go down. Isn't that yep. correct? Yep. Um, let's talk some now about the pandemic and the effect of the pandemic on Mendocino County and particularly the effect within that of the pandemic on the supervisorial district that you represent. And please get be clear for our listeners, uh, tell us the area that you do represent. I represent the 5th District. Um, I'm up, up at the northern uh, corner of the 5th District. If you look out my window behind me, that's uh, Supervisor Jurdy's 4th District. And uh, a lot of times I look across the water that, and wonder what's going on in the 4th. But So I, I, my district starts here, runs all the way south to the... He, here town. being where? Tell us where here is, Ted. The, the town of Mendocino. Thank you. All the way south to, along the coast to uh, the Sonoma County line at the uh, Wallala River. And then uh, inland uh, includes uh, the town of Hopland and wraps around uh, the west side of Ukiah and actually includes um, a community off Highway 20. So the 5th District is enormous, not a lot of population density. Uh, my only city is Point Arena. Uh, which has a population of maybe 500, 600. It sounds like an enormous piece of geography. Uh, from, from, from your point, vantage point there in Mendocino, you're going all the way down to the Sonoma County line. Do you, can you give us a rough estimation of uh, the distance? Uh, I think it's about uh, 59 miles. Uh, wow. From my 50- house, maybe, it, maybe it's 60 miles from district line to district line. So if you're trying to make a rectangle out of this, you've got a, a length of 59 miles. And then what's the width of this rectangle? Well, you know, it's mountainous. So, you know, as a bird flies, it may not um, seem like a whole lot, but it takes me an hour and a half uh, or maybe an hour and three quarters to get out to Hopland. And uh, there are days where, uh, you know, I've been in Anderson Valley and then Hopland and then the South Coast. And most of my days spent driving 
the people on the South Coast, I really appreciate for them to come and give three minutes of public comment at a board of supervisors meeting. Uh, they may drive uh, almost five hours round trip. Well, for those of us in Fort Bragg, it's at least a three hour round trip uh, to go in person. Though nowadays with COVID, of course, it, it can be done on the Zoom, but before that, it was a major trip. So one of the things that one of the challenges for this county, this county, by the way, in case we didn't say it, is approximately three hours northwest, mostly north and west of San Francisco. So it's in Northern California, and that's where it is, you know, you can locate it. So roughly 90,000 people, larger than the smallest state in the union, a myriad of roads, a huge terrain between the county seat and those are on the coast. Has there been talk over the years? Does it make any sense? Should this be one county, Ted, or should it actually be two counties? What's your opinion? Well, I've asked this question a number of times. Uh, should the inland be, I don't know, the county of Ukiah and uh, let, let the coast go its own way? I, I think you'd make a lot of people happy. I think the coast would feel that they'd have uh, five supervisors, each representing a section of the coast. Uh, the coast is often forgotten, having only two out of five supervisors, never a majority. And I think uh, inland, they may feel a uh, good riddance that they have slightly different uh, political mindset. And, uh, you know, they, they'd be happy to uh, see the coast go its own way. I don't know how it would work financially if either would be able to sustain uh, resources. Yeah. There's an economy of scale. Yeah. And having to have two counties provide the duplicate services, maybe there'd be a way to do it with agreements and, and continue some, um, some, some union of core services. I don't know. I, I don't see it happening in the near term uh, just due to uh, the financial reality. Um, Mendocino County, if I'm, I hope I'm not misstating here, but I think in the very early years was actually uh, run out of Sonoma County um, okay. as it was getting started. And, and even today, you know, I think we barely have the resources to, to, to run a county properly. One, one, of the, one of the differences between Mendocino and some other uh, counties is I don't think it was ever envisioned that we would have so many people living in the unincorporated. And you look at Sonoma County and they have about half as many public employees per capita. And they have a lot of people in cities and cities have additional funding sources beyond what counties have. Uh, you can start to put together the piece that, you know, they, we have a budget, a, rev, a revenue of about 320 million. So 0.3 billion. Sonoma County has 1.9 billion. And uh, per capita, that's, that's a whole lot, whole lot more. They have five times the population, almost six times the population, but more than uh, seven times the revenue. So they're in much better shape. Okay, back to the pandemic. It's been about a year. What's it been like for you as supervisor, county supervisor during this pandemic? What's it been I, like for what's it been like for you personally, professionally? And then we want to talk about the specifics of the pandemic on the population. It, it, it pandemics are bad. Uh, it, you know, it's not it's the once in a hundred years, so you don't have systems that have been designed and tested for dealing with these situations. And what worked last time, it's a different world now. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have the population we have. You didn't have the types of businesses that, that, are, that are impacted. Um, I, I, you know, it's been dark to dark for me, seven days a week. I think our county staff is uh, overworked, hanging in there, but long days. And I imagine the other supervisors are in a, a similar position. A lot of conflict. You have factions. You have people who still believe that it's a, a conspiracy and that we're unnecessarily shutting down business. And you have folks on the other side of the extreme feeling that we need a true quarantine and shut the borders of the county. We don't have that power. Maybe the governor could do it, but uh, the county is not an autonomous region. And in some cases, you know, local land use, we have a lot of authority. In other cases, uh, we're acting as agents of the state. And this is just not a power we have to go establishing borders and and, and frankly, as many people uh, that we see coming to our county, we probably have residents going to neighboring counties to shop, to go to medical appointments, to work, and imagine blocking them. It's just not feasible. But, 
But those types of discussions have been a never-ending source of conflict over what the appropriate action is. And I, I think it has a lot to do with uh, who you are, your place in society. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's very difficult to say, hey, let's just shut down for the next year, right? You need that income. And there's not enough state and federal resources coming to support you. If you're somebody who's retired and you can hide out at home, well, you think everybody should do that. Um, it's you, you, the proper response to a pandemic requires federal support that we haven't seen. And that's, that's really led us to the, the conflict, those who can afford to, sh- to shelter in place and, and those who cannot. And then I'd say there's maybe a third category, people who say, no, it's not a conspiracy. This virus is real. But you know, philosophically, shutting down is not appropriate. And you know, we can withstand some risk. And, um, and it, it's hard to argue against that because it really is philosophical. Uh, you know, how much, how much do we shut down to protect the most vulnerable? I would argue um, we shut down quite a bit. We find ways to work uh, in which we don't endanger our neighbors. Imagine if you're 90 and you see this thing coming and it's life and death for you. I want to do everything I can to protect those people. But I, but I understand that uh, this will be debated long after the pandemic is over, where that line uh, should be and the role of government. What you're saying is that it's your belief that when a pandemic occurs, the federal government needs to step in if we're going to do the kind of shutdowns we're doing and protect those people who need protection because they can't go three, six, nine, 12 months without working and staying in isolation. Is that correct? That, that, that's right. And when you look at other countries that uh, have not shut down, look at Sweden, their economy is hit. It's not a question of, do you, do you say preserve life or do you preserve the economy? If you have a large number of people uh, sick uh, with COVID, uh, that is an impact to the economy. And so, you know, could there be a could, could there have been a better collaboration between local government, state government, and federal government? A- absolutely, we didn't get the support that we needed, and we were uh, scrambling to uh, try to solve a problem well beyond our means. Well, even to those of us who are somewhat outside of the political system uh, that you are uh, uh, giving your service to, uh, it's pretty obvious that when a federal government says to fifty states. Uh, handle it on your own, that's a grievous mistake because uh, from a certain perspective, and it happens to be my perspective, uh, the pandemic is a, is a war. Uh, I, I don't differentiate when my neighbors are getting injured and killed. I don't differentiate between the size of the invader, be they microscopic or, or, uh, or animal size or human size. It's still an invader causing injury and death. So I see it as a war. And, and we never in the history of our country has a federal government, when, when we've been at war with another country, said, OK, all 50 states, you can go to you can handle it on your own. This needed to be a coordinated effort, and so we missed a a major step there. Now, looking forward, before we get back to Mendocino County and the the pandemic, looking forward, in the few days that you've heard from this new administration, do you get the sense that there's going to be more of a coordinated effort and there's going to be more uh, funding for, uh, for for our county? Well, I think the stimulus may, may help a little. It's, it's not an answer by itself. I'm happy mm-hmm. to see the, the boost. For the people who need it most, uh, it's really essential. You know, if I, if I could change anything at the federal level for stimulus, I would say, let's direct it to the people who need it most. Maybe not everybody. Okay, let's say you have that magic wand at the federal level. What would you do to protect the essential workers and those who are out of work in large numbers? How would you handle it? Well, I, I would pool the available stimulus funds and funnel it to the people who, um, you know, need it the most, pay utility bills. You don't want people having their gas, water, electricity shut off, uh, subsidize their rent if that stops them from getting evicted, uh, be a little more surgical about it. The stimulus, uh, you know, will help with the overall economy of injecting some, some liquidity at, at a time that it's needed. Um, but is it really helping the people who are most vulnerable and at risk? Uh, we could probably do a better job. I don't want to be too critical, though. I'm happy to see some 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 funds flowing. I'm more excited about the effort to actually uh, p- 
put, put together a plan for the vaccine distribution. At a county level, I've got, uh, I actually have 2,600 people who have registered on my list so that I can provide them with announcements of upcoming clinics. And uh, the county puts in its request on uh, Thursday and on the following Tuesday learns what may be coming. And then you know, a couple of days later, we actually get the supply and then we try to get it in appropriate arms within 72 hours. So far we've been successful. Public health has gotten a bad rap because of the circus upstream in the federal government. And, but, but when you look at what, what they're actually dealing with, very little notice. They pull people together. They make sure they're the right t- phases and tier, right? We want to try to vaccinate those 90-year-olds that are most at risk, healthcare workers, dentists, the people who need to stay working to serve us. That, that's happening. And it, it's happening in a day or two. And really phenomenal. And when you look at uh, Mendocino County versus the state, we've been more effective than, effective than many other counties. When you look at the number of vaccines across the nation versus per capita in Mendocino County, we rise to the top. We haven't done a good job telling our story because our public health uh, employees have been so busy carrying out the work. They're not in a position to write press releases uh, boasting about what a good job we're doing. But uh, I, I, there's also a lot of public frustration. And that frustration comes from uh, people being told they're now eligible, they're 75 and up or they're 65 and up. Well, they may be eligible, but when you're only getting 500 vaccines in a week, there's, there's more than an order of magnitude on that waiting list and all wanting to get to the front of the door and asking how do they register to get it, get it first. Uh, I, I imagine the system will be fine-tuned just like the business restrictions over time evolved. The state figured out a better way to do it. Purely speculative on my part, I think the state may move to a more age-based approach. You can verify an age by looking at a driver's license. Um, you know, tell me how to verify somebody who is doing uh, home health, who isn't enrolled in a government program, they're working privately, providing care to elderly and vulnerable residents. Maybe they have a letter from the employee vouching. Maybe the clinic will believe that. Maybe they won't because a lot of people are trying to cut in front of the line. It's, it's very problematic to do the verification that's necessary to follow the current uh, tiers. So um, help me with one thing there. I think I lost you around the bend, which is on the one hand, you were saying that the, the county health officials are working so hard, they don't really have time to boast about what's going on. But at the same time, you, you seem to be saying that there aren't enough vaccines coming in. And, uh, you know, how it's, purely, it's, purely a, it's purely a supply problem. It's the supplies are slowly trickling into the county. Um, we could scale uh-huh. up. I mean, I, we could go out to a soccer field and vaccinate a few thousand today. Yes. If we had, yes. the, if we had the, the vials with doses, that's what we're missing. And who determines what allotment for Mendocino County? Who determines how much our county gets? For, because I'm sort of curious. My, my daughter, Serana, lives in a town of 1700 in Haines, Alaska. And the, you can't get there by truck or car. The only way you can get there is by a ferry boat uh, or, or an airplane, uh, unless you go up through Canada and down and you're not, we can't go to Canada. So it's plane or boat. 50% of the people in that little town have already been vaccinated. And so that sort of I'm, this makes me scratch my head a little bit. How do they get 50% of the people in a little tiny town of 1700 vaccinated by boat and by plane and I'm hearing what you're telling us today, that they're dribbling into Mendocino County. Uh, can, do you have any understanding? Is anybody uh, telling you why we're getting a dribble? And is there anything we can do to get more than a dribble and open the faucet? Well, I think we're getting more than our fair share if you look at a national scale. Oh. Per, cap, per capita, we're actually um, ahead. We're, we're at uh, more than 10% of the eligible population vaccinated. Over, eight, pop, over uh, close to 9,000 people have been vaccinated? Uh, well, of the eligible, remember you remove children uh, up to age 16. They're not eligible. It's not F- FDA approved. But the 16 and up, uh, we're, I, at, we're at more than 10%. And I think we hit that over a week ago. Well, 
Um, but, but, you know, how does vaccine get to us? There's a lot of confusion. People think that the county government is receiving the vaccines and making all the decisions and executing. There's actually multiple paths into the county. Public health does get an allocation and it varies. There was one week, I think we got over 3,000. Another week we got 500 and we don't know what we're getting uh, two weeks out. The hospitals uh, here are Adventist. Well, they're part of a multi-county um, uh, effort and they're getting their own stream of vaccines. Hopefully they're following the, the same public health tiers. Uh, I talk to them uh, almost every day and I have assurance that they are, but we're not overseeing that. And so when I get complaints, I have to say, I don't, I don't actually know, but, but they are committed to following the same model as our public health. Um, VA has its own, uh, consolidated, uh, has received some supply for the tribes. And then you have this federal agreement with CVS and Walmart, or I'm sorry, CVS and Walgreens. Uh, we've just in the last week, we started to receive awareness of when they plan to do the long-term care facilities. And there's more than a dozen on the list. I would have thought that would have been the first target. One of the most vulnerable populations in a facility where the virus spreads like wildfire due to close proximity. I don't think they're going to be vaccinated until late February. Uh, it's a shame, but you know, public health has been in a position where if we would have jumped in and done it, then CVS and Walgreens wouldn't do it under the federal agreement, but we would be short those vaccines. And we've applied those vaccines to other at-risk populations. Last week, there was an opportunity to uh, fill 60 spaces we've, at a clinic. We filled those with 1A healthcare workers who hadn't been vaccinated yet. And then we were able to get a few 1Bs in. Those 1Bs, we started at age 97 and started working our way down. I have people who are 66, 67, uh, writing, complaining, how is it that the state said they're eligible, but they're not getting one this week? And I hope they understand that night for that 97-year-old, it is also a high priority. And, you know, these are, um, this, this is a situation public health does not want to be in of divvying out vaccines, deciding who is more, more in need. Well, a lot of people are in need. And you've got younger people with pre-existing health conditions that put them at risk. You know, they're in need also. It's simply a supply issue that no matter what system we use, there's not enough in the first few weeks. It may take 10, 12 weeks plus to get through the, the current eligibility tiers. What can you share with our listeners about your best guess as to when the county will be vaccinated, or at least those within the county who want to be vaccinated will be vaccinated? We, we we don't have that visibility. Or we, another way of asking that we we at, at uh, best, I was gonna say another go ahead. I'm sorry. Another way of asking the same question is how much longer of 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 protection do should people be thinking they need to get themselves ready for with you know masking, social distance, hand washing. How much more time before? there's enough people vaccinated. Do you have a, a rough estimate of that or is it too difficult to tell at this time? We, we barely have visibility into what's coming next week. Uh, mm -hmm. at, the, at the current rate, uh, it would probably take two years. Um, I'm hopeful Biden administration is talking about the ability to uh, ramp up to about four times the rate. I hope that happens and that by late summer, most of the uh, willing population will be vaccinated. But as far as social distancing and, and wearing masks, that, that'll continue for some time. Even somebody who's uh, been vaccinated, we don't know uh, whether they can be a carrier or how much of a carrier they may be. And uh, you know, even if they're uh, asymptomatic, can they uh, transfer COVID from work to um, a grandparent? And you know, that science is still pending. And so even, even those who have gotten vaccinated that first 10%, they need to continue following protocol. Also out of respect for neighbors who haven't been vaccinated, the last thing we need is people running around taking their masks off because it'll be very confusing for the rest of us to figure out, is it that they think they're safe now or um, is it just an anti-masker? So these, these precautions will go on. I, I will say I've been concerned by the amount of people declining out of the eligible pool, uh, 
you know, the initial surge, we have a lot of people, far more demand than supply. But looking at whether it's, it's teachers or healthcare workers, I expected they would be at 100% or near 100%. And, and that, that hasn't been the case. What's been, the, of, what's, what's been the number, Ted? Well, I, I think initially it was about a 30% uh, decline rate. And that may be changing. It may be that they're seeing their coworkers have gone first and they've gotten it, no bad reactions, and, and hopefully that'll pick up. But if we need to hit 85% to really have herd immunity and put an end to this virus in Mendocino County, uh, I am worried that we may not get close to that target anytime soon. And remember, just because you've had you've been vaccinated doesn't give you 100%. If it's 95%, well, one in 20 of us uh, will still run the risk. And if you don't have herd immunity, that's a, that's still a significant risk. So do you, do you have any tips on how are we how are we going to get there? And is it just the messenger RNA approach that uh, has people alarmed or is it vaccines in general? Well, I'll answer that. I, I, I think it's vaccines in general that have people concerned because there's been a tremendous amount of false information going on about vaccines going back to our Revolutionary War. I mean, the, George Washington had smallpox as a child, and a lot of people point to that and say that was what part of what helped us win the war because so many of his men got smallpox and so many people in Philadelphia were getting smallpox. In fact, the English army who had to boat people all the way over here across the moat, uh, they were decimated by smallpox. And, and at the time, there was a much more uh, suspicious, skeptical nature. People couldn't quite understand the whole issue of taking something and getting the disease in order not to have the disease. It was just too much of a stretch of the imagination. And 250 years later, we're still dealing, not only are we dealing with that, but then we are also dealing with people within the medical profession itself, such as Dr. Wakefield, who became extremely famous because of making a connection between vaccines and autism. And, and, uh, and he went around the world uh, telling people that there was a connection between, he's saying things like, why do you think there's so much more autism now than there ever was before? It's because of the vaccine. Scared the heck out of people all over Europe. He was an English doctor. Then he, came, he was run out of England, lost his license. Then he came to this country. And so you had these sort of evangelists that were anti-vaccinators, and it, it's, uh, it was very frightening. And it's very frightening to, to, to people who are really far removed from the science of it. It seems like voodoo to them to, to take something that's, uh, that, that might give you a little something, and then you're going to be protected against the big something. So we have a real problem there. There's no question about it. It's, an, it's, a, it's, it's re- related to the anti-maskers, but it's not in the same pew. Uh, it really isn't. Uh, uh, so we, we do have a problem. And Ted, I don't know if I understand. In fact, I know I don't really understand the concept of herd immunity. I've given it a lot of thought. I've read plenty about it, but I still don't understand it. If there's 85% of the people who are vaccinated, you have 15% who aren't. I don't see, number one, how those 15% are are protected. Number two, 15% of 330 million people is 50 million people. That's an awful lot of people would be walking around unprotected. And then we have perhaps the most serious aspect of the whole thing is what you said just a couple of minutes ago that I made a note here that I wanted to underline in red for our listeners, namely, and correct me if I heard this wrong, please, Ted. I heard our supervisors say, and I've heard it from scientists as well, that we really don't know if once you've gotten the vaccine, whether you can still pick up the virus from somebody and bring it home and give it to one of your loved ones in the house. Right, Ted? Isn't that what you said? That's right. So that in and of itself, think of that, folks. You can be totally resistant yourself, but you can be a carrier. So in that case, 
If 85% of the population are vaccinated, 15% aren't, and even if a small percentage of the 85% are carriers, they can give it to that other 15% just by walking around, if they're walking around without masks and social distancing. And then we've got that 15% who are totally vulnerable. So within that, can you explain to me what herd immunity is? I mean, the way way I would look at it is... um... You know, when you look at the rate of spread with the virus, um, the R naught is a, is an important um, value. Uh, how many, if you get sick, how many people will you spread it to while you're contagious? And if the answer is is one or less, you have a linear rate of spread. But if you right. spread if you spread it to two, now you have this exponential, right? Each one of them spreads it to two. So if you have a population uh, significantly vaccinated, and depending on how contagious the virus is, that number shifts. And so we don't know exactly, but I've seen estimates in the 80, 85% range. Um, if you, you have fewer people who are going to pick it up and pass it on to somebody else, in theory, assuming that vaccinated, they're less of a, of a carrier. Yes. Right. And which, which we don't know. There's an awful lot of unknowns here. But imagine if, if we all across the country each had one friend and, you know, we pass a message on to that friend and then they relay it. Imagine how slow, and maybe we have less than one friend on average. We have half a friend. Some of us, you know, poorly connected. It's, it's going to be slow going. Whereas if each of us has five friends, that message will propagate a whole lot faster. We tell five, they each tell five. And so you, you can negate some of that exponential effect uh, with, with, with a larger vaccinated uh, public. But I, I think what you're saying, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, is what others who are of scientific mind and who are honest like you are, are saying, which is, we're going to be dealing with this for quite a while. The, this isn't something we're going to be over in six months or seven months or eight months. We've got a, a stretch ahead of us where we're going to have to be wearing masks and social distancing and, and taking care of each other. Is that correct? I, I would think so. I mean, there's, yeah. there's this, you, you've highlighted some of the unknowns. Um, These, you know, would it, will an RNA yeah. virus uh, mutate to the point that the vaccine is not effective a couple of years down the road? I don't think we know. The good news is seeing um, how quick they were able to develop this. Yes. Knowing, well, it could be tuned again. At least there's a model in place that uh, is, is initially successful. That's it's a good sign, but it's an unknown. Yeah, I do know also, and you might have heard yourself, that there are scientists working on a different kind of vaccine than the RNA vaccine. Just to uh, sort of illustrate it for our listeners, if you picture the, the, the virus as a bowling ball with spikes on it, uh, the, the RNA vaccine, and that's Pfizer and uh, Moderna, are, are working on the spikes themselves so that the spikes are either sliced off or shortened so that they don't stick onto us. But there's another company uh, that's working on a, a totally different approach, which is to build up our fighters, our T cells, so that they actually attack the virus. So then we would have two different kinds of protection. One would stop the virus from sticking on us, and the other would attack the virus once it gets into us. So, you know, there's some hope on the horizon for that. And given the rate at which you know the companies have moved on the on the on any vaccination whatsoever. I think there is you know some hope and light at the end of the tunnel on, on other vaccines coming down the pike. Uh, okay, let's talk about what's what the the present situation short of the vaccine. We have masking, social distancing, hand washing, and to a certain lesser extent, testing and and, and contact uh, tracing. How is that working here in the county? How do you feel about how the county is doing with regard to the the number of cases and how are the IC units doing? Because the ICU units are what are a major metric for being able to open or not open in the state of California, correct? That's correct. And it's it's by region. So we're in a region with essentially the counties to the north and to the east. And our, our region, 15% is the cutoff. You drop below 15% uh, bed availability. And it's not just beds. People think, well, can't hospital scales up, scale up? They have a lot of rooms. It's beds with the proper equipment and staffed. Staffing is really key. It's hard to produce uh, uh, exponentially more uh, ICU nurses overnight. 
right? We have what we have uh, is, is a normal day-to-day system with a little bit of surge capacity. That's really what we have to work with. And, you know, when you asked about herd immunity, well, the, the, the rate of uh, survivability and, and um, addressing complications from COVID is much better when there's an available ICU bed. Where you start seeing uh, uh, wor- wor- worsening outcomes is where you're sick and you don't have a hospital to go to, or if you do, you're in their waiting room because they don't have an ICU bed available. And so that 15%, the state is set as a threshold. You get below that and certain business restrictions come into effect. I don't, there's, there will be endless debate about whether the restrictions are right. I think there's some truth to, it's more of the social gatherings that are causing the, the, the increase. People getting together on holidays uh, will cause a big spike. It's more of that than it is people uh, frequenting small businesses. So why is the state not addressing those, those gatherings? Um, some of it is constitutional rights, uh, the enforceability, the uh, law enforcement model of, of uh, every county having a sheriff elected by the people and may not be in favor of uh, doing the enforcement. And so I think the state is trying to reduce cumulative impact where they can. And they may not be targeting the highest uh, categories. They're targeting the categories that they can target. And uh, so in Southern California, you have communities that just don't have beds available. They're down to zero. And which means either uh, putting people in uh, parking garages. I've actually seen that where they've converted a parking garage into a makeshift uh, ICU uh, facility, or uh, maybe they transfer to another community. We, we may, given that we're a bit delayed, we may actually be the recipient of patients from elsewhere. I've had people argue, can't we stop that? Can't we make sure we reserve beds for our people? Well, you, you, there's, there's nothing ethical about having a bed available and telling somebody that because they're from a different county, they can't use it. If it's available, it's available to serve the public. Um, and, yes. you know, I go, to, uh, I go to traffic collisions where we load people on helicopters and we fly them out. A lot of times they're going to Sonoma County. Well, Sonoma County doesn't say, hey, that's not a county residence. You know, they understand yeah. they are the closest trauma center. Sure. And so, I, you know, we just have to live with that reality that the numbers will fluctuate. Our facilities will be used by folks from elsewhere. And uh, we do have to reduce cumulative impact if we get too close to running out of beds. I've been watching the numbers uh, here on the coast. And something that uh, really has struck me and I'd like your opinion on is over the Labor Day weekend, I believe it was, I think the numbers said that we had something like over 40,000 guests here on the coast. I don't know if you've heard that number or if there's any reality to that number, but that's a number that, I, that was thrown around. And the, the, what interested me, even if it was 10 or 20,000 and not 40,000, is that when I watched the number of cases in the two weeks following that Labor Day weekend, whereas other parts of the country went up and there were spikes, we did not spike here on the coast. And has anybody given any thought to that or uh, uh, gained an understanding? Because if what I'm saying is accurate, remember, I'm far removed, I'm just you know, looking from the outside in. But if it is true, and I think I'm getting the data from the county's government, that we did not spike I would think that the reason we didn't spike might be valuable to other parts of the country if we could share with them what was it that we did that stopped us, that that protected us during that period. As I understand, the the typical delay is closer to three weeks, but I okay your point holds. And you know, when we allowed lodging to reopen, we put in a lot of effort with the lodging industry and actually brought them to the table and asked them, um, here are some of the, the, um, the, 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 the issues that we've spotted with visitors coming. How do you plan to address these? And we worked hand in hand. And so rather than having an influx of people with lodging closed where it's a free-for-all, uh, checking into a facility, they're given education. They're told what the expectations are. And, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to, we see correlation. It's hard to find that cause and effect. But, but, but I believe that that may be a component that we have lodging operators that are doing their part to um, educate their guests about how they're expected to behave while they're in our county on vacation. 
No, I will say there's there's a lot of people who, in the community who who don't like it that the visitors are coming in and would just assume uh, tourism be shut down. It's it's a difficult place for uh, a county official to be. We don't we there's not a lot of clarity on you know what exact authority we have to make those shutdowns. We don't have enforcement, so if we make the rules, it probably won't be enforced, and then we get an endless stream of complaints about why isn't there enforcement. And, and I don't know if those visitors are actually causing uh, the problem. It, from what I've seen from the contact tracing we do, uh, you don't see the, the, the spots, the populations that you think would be most affected by tourists um, at a higher rate. You actually see them at a, catching COVID at a lower rate. You see more um, inland uh, gatherings being a problem. You know, I understand while we were talking about tourism, there was a hundred person party on the coast. There was a 50 person party inland, no masks. I, I got the invitations late. And, you know, that's probably more of a problem than a tourist that's wearing a mask and social distancing. <laughs> I, I'm not invited to those parties. <laughs> they seem to, <laughs> to, to know better. Now, related to the hotel industry, I mean, I don't know if you all in, in governments see that what happened over the the Labor Day weekend as a successful educational venture or not, because as you say, there's a correlation, but you can't be sure of cause and effect, but it was successful nonetheless. But related to that is the data that I look at from the county indicate that something more or less like 68% of the actual cases in Mendocino County are within the Hispanic community. Does that resonate for you? Is that roughly the number that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the same socioeconomic lines that we, we see with healthcare in general and now applied to the pandemic. Um, These communities uh, tend to have uh, public facing jobs where they're more at risk. Uh, They work environment in environments where there's less ability to social distance Um, Many live in, as a group, you know, I hate to generalize, but as a group, um, may live in multi-generational families, more people in a house. So one catches it, and suddenly everybody in the house has it. And, um, you know, it's not necessarily that they're uh, any less concerned or doing not doing their part uh, so much as it's it's a more difficult environment to, to contain it. And then I, you know, I would, I would think maybe, maybe early on there wasn't as much outreach, Spanish-speaking outreach, as as there should have been. Have the and, numbers you know, been changing these, are these people, in terms? Say that again. Have the have the percentages been changing in recent months as the outreach has gotten better to the Hispanic community? Do you happen to know? Not, not, not considerably. No. Uh, it, it remains, um, you know, for for. Uh, relative to our overall population, they're, they're dis- disproportionately affected. And, that, and that's been a constant. I've wondered, and I haven't been able to find data on this, possibly you have some, I've wondered whether what, how high a correlation there is between economic status and the infection rate. In other words, is, is it, a, is it a, a relationship such that the less money you make, the more uh, chances you have of getting infected. Yeah, I, I don't have the data in front of me to prove it. Do you but, know anything uh, about I, I, I have speculated the same. And the reason I say that is that the less money one makes, I would guess, and I think I'm accurate, the more likely you're sharing less space with more people so that, you know, a, 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 a retired couple, as you pointed out earlier, who live in a private home can go a long period of time without seeing hardly anybody in that private home. But a family with a mother and father and four children and an aunt or an uncle living in the house, we've got seven or eight people in who knows what size place. And so if one of them gets infected, there's a much higher likelihood. And I wonder if that's what made me, you know, conjecture about this uh, relationship between economic status and infection rate. I'll tell you that it was um, it was heartbreaking. This is the personal element of pandemic shutdowns. When you're talking to the businesses that are uh, very small businesses, say uh, a salon single owner, and she's telling you that she has two kids that depend on her, 
and uh, she doesn't have any funds to to weather the shutdown. Yeah, and can't she put a tent outside and work? She needs this income. Otherwise, yes. she loses her business. She'll lose her her residence. Um, you know, it's heartbreaking. You give pause to: Is this shutdown really critical? Is she actually responsible for causing the increase in cases? And if not, what what are we doing? Yes, yes. Interesting example you give because my wife actually goes to someone who does exactly that and set up a tent in her backyard uh, just, uh, you know, for that purpose. And then one day my wife called for an appointment and the lady said, I can't see you for a couple of weeks because I have COVID. And it was, it was heartbreaking because she is a single mother with a couple of kids and, and that's, it's wrenching. And, and, and uh, also knowing that the, uh, the, uh, the increase in the number, number of people going to the uh, food bank, uh, here in Fort Bragg, California, has increased uh, dramatically. Um, what else can we offer our listeners today as we're winding up, Ted, that will uh, help them in some way, give them some education in some way, or just give them some hope uh, with regard to pandemic fatigue? I mean, that's a that happens to be a, a topic that's that's uh, for me as a clinical psychologist is very much on my consciousness, what kind of things can be done community related to build well, morale, I, to build morale in terms of pandemic fatigue? The, the pandemic is divisive across all sorts of uh, lines. And, you know, we now have a progress bar and it's moving. It's not moving as quick as we would like. This is the vaccine progress bar that's going to get us closer to ending the pandemic. And while that's moving forward and this, as the supplies trickle in, I think what we can do is try to find common ground with people we don't necessarily agree with and, you know, agree that we may not know until years later what the ideal restrictions were and how much distancing was required, but let's keep doing it. We're almost there. And when this is all over, we don't want to look out at our neighbor and think, Hey, that's the guy that during the pandemic, you know, we agreed and we stopped speaking to each other because we thought tourism should be stopped or tourism should be opened. Um, you know, that's still our neighbor. We're just getting through a very difficult time. And uh, once in a hundred years, we're almost through it. You're here. You know, there's a joke going around, Ted, about the new um, uh, secretary that's uh, uh, press secretary for, for the president, uh, Jen Psaki, I believe her name is. And the joke going around is, hey, did you hear what happened with the press secretary? She got in front of the news people and she told the truth. <laughs> and and so I want to end this by saying it's been a real pleasure meeting with a community leader with a supervisor who simply tells the truth it's very obvious Ted you don't mince words you get right to it you give straight answers to straight questions and I think the people of Mendocino County are very fortunate to have you representing us and I thank you very much for spending time today with us on Mind Body Health and Politics Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure. We'll see you again. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We'll see you again next week at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) 